I'm preaching through Romans. We're in Romans chapter 7, and I've told you for a few weeks that eventually uh, we'll get into some deeper water, and uh, we're starting to edge into some of those deeper things. Most of Paul's writing will have a section that is very theological and then a section that's very practical. That hard transition happens in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, so we're not there yet. We're still in the theological section. But today, before we leave, hopefully you'll leave seeing a a bit of wisdom as well as a bit of a warning. And uh, most of us know Uh, what it feels like to be criticized. We have, for one reason or another, faced criticism. It can be something very simple. It could be something a bit more uh, serious or, or, you know, just runs the gamut. Maybe what you wore to, to a particular place, a project you're responsible for, how you raise your kids, what you do. I just, we know what criticism is. And I really think that may not be the best illustration But I think when Paul comes to chapter 7, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing. And I think the the danger that he may sense in what he's already said and would be sent to the church at Rome is that some people could become very critical of the law. In Romans chapter 6, it's clear that we are under grace. And I am so thankful that we are under grace. There's not a one of us in this room. There's not a one of us in our community who could perfectly keep the law. So I'm thankful for grace. But I think Paul is emphasizing the fact there still needs to be a respect for it. But we also need to understand its effects. And so he does make clear we're under grace. We're not under law. But we need to understand there is a purpose behind the law. And so there's wisdom and there's warning. So the first section is a description of the law. He just walks through and he's describing again for the Christians at Rome what the law is. There's a description. And so I want to just walk through that and and then uh, we'll shift to another consideration before we get to the end of our section today. Romans chapter 7, we're going to go through verses 1 through 13. And so as he's describing the law... I want you to notice, first of all, a principle that he gives them. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, which likely means he's writing to the Christians in Rome who had come out of Judaism, those who were Jewish and then they understood uh, the way of Christ. He's writing to them, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. And this is what he says, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, y'all, this is just a very simple principle that he's reminding them of, and it is the effects of, the power of, the rule of law ends when we die. That, that's the first thing we need to remember. And he's just laying that out, very simple. And he moves on, and he moves on from a principle to a picture. He picks a particular topic to illustrate what he just said. Romans chapter 7 verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Now let me quickly remind you, this is an illustration of a principle related to the law. 
we will not use this passage to jump off and deal with the subject and the topic of marriage. Scripture does not say death is the only issue regarding marriage, divorce, remarriage, but this is Paul's chosen illustration regarding the law and how when we die, the law no longer has any effect over us. He's simply saying that like the law, marriage vows are effective so long as individuals are alive. When there's a death, there's no longer a concern. So there's a principle and there's a picture. And those are my first two points, and that's pretty quick. Are y'all excited? <laughs> but then he moves quickly to talk about a purpose. Look at verse 4 of Romans chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, but there's application for sisters as well. So let me just go ahead and get that out there. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The issue is dying to sin, dying to the old way, and our being connected to, related to, resurrected with another. So remember, he's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the redeemed. He's writing to the Christians. He's writing to people who are very much like you and me. And in his writing, his letter, his illustration is that like the death of a spouse would free someone from the marriage laws, those in Christ have also died to the law. It's an illustration that we ought not get caught up in because all he's saying is that the law no longer has the effect on you and me if we are in Christ. Because when we die in Christ, the obligation to legalism has also died. Now, here's the thing. The law does not die. The law is still there. The law is still given by God. The law is still something you and I can read and appreciate in the Old Testament. But the demands to the rigidity of the law is done away with. We died to the law when we're crucified with Christ, when we're buried with Christ, when we're united with Christ, when we're raised to new life in Christ. We're dead to the law. And so when you and I come under the lordship of Christ, we are coming so that our life can be completely altered. As one, to use his illustration, as one who is free now to be united with another. Who are we united with? The resurrected Christ. Why? Well, he begins to tell us so that we can bear fruit for God. And, and so here's that wisdom. You and I are no longer constrained by the law. It has an effect. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But here's the wisdom. You and I now being dead in Christ, we are to bear fruit for God. We speak of death. We speak of resurrection so that we can bear fruit. Now that leads us, as we will see, to a contrast between fruit and flesh. We are to bear fruit. But the struggle is we're to bear it out of this body of flesh. We already know we're to bear fruit. Jesus had something to say about this. In the Gospel of John chapter 15, you are familiar with this if you're familiar with his teachings. 
But Jesus said to those who would follow him, I am the true vine. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, my sermon's not about John 15, but that's the picture Jesus paints for you and for me. That you and I are to be fruit-bearing Christians, and we find our life, we find our sustenance in him. And there are times when the Father will prune us, not so we would be punished, but so we would be more fruitful. And so Jesus makes clear that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it would bear more fruit. Already, verse 3, you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And then he says, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We are to have fruitful Christian lives bearing fruit for God. Now some would say rightly, well, what is fruit? Well, Paul answers that in a letter he wrote to the church at Galatia. And there's two primary areas or ways or means by which we bear fruit. First of all, we bear Christian fruit in our attitudes. Paul makes this clear in the letter to the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, Spirit living in us, Spirit fighting against this flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he begins to list for us all these fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You and I are alive in Christ. You and I are connected, as it were, to the branch. He is the vine. We are the branches, and we are to bear fruit. Now, there will be a struggle to do this in this life because we're to bear fruit out of this flesh. And every now and then, your first response with your attitude is not going to be love. Why? Because some people are hard to love. And most of the people we interact are people that also inhabit flesh like we do. Really, everybody we encounter. Joy. There are things in life that would suck the joy out of our life. But the Spirit in us results in joy. Peace. We're not going to be shaken. We're not going to be rattled. Though things come against us. What do we have? We have peace. How? Because we're abiding in Christ. Patience. Some of y'all stand at the microwave and yell, hurry! Some of y'all who work in Huntsville, I'm telling you, God's going to teach y'all a lesson in these next few months. Too soon? Too soon? Sorry. But you get the idea. We, we all we have to struggle with this flesh, but the Bible says that one of the reasons why we are dead is so we can be made alive. I don't know if y'all remember that. I said the only way to life as a Christian is through your death. We're alive in Christ, and we are alive in him so that you and I can bear fruit. And so Paul has given us a principle, a picture, a purpose, and then he comes in this section finally to a path. 
And so he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He mentions here again the flesh. The portion, the part of our existence that is in a constant battle, a regular struggle with the Spirit. Now, you may have noticed that Paul wrote this in the past tense. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passion was at work. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying the flesh is no longer in control. It does not mean we will not struggle, but it is no longer in control. The law, the flesh, is no longer the ruler. And a few weeks ago, I gave you that great quote from Charles Spurgeon who said the old man may be dead, but he's a long time dying. This flesh is a long time dying. But then we have this transition in verse 6. I just read the ESV. It says, but now we are released from the law. Some translations say, so now we are released from the law. It's a transitional statement. As you and I are transitioned, we are now free. We are alive. We are unbound. Why? How? So that we can serve in the Spirit. And so the question would be then, are you bearing fruit from the Lord? Here, here's the wisdom. You and I are to be bearing fruit for the Lord. Is there the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That, that attitudinal thing, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you look in the mirror, if other people observe your life, do they see this attitudinal fruit of the Spirit? And I told you it's not just attitudinal, but it's also action. And by that I mean, what are you doing for the Lord? I've told you my childhood pastor used to say, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? And the point was, what are you doing for the sake of heaven? What are you doing for the sake of the Lord? What are you doing in your flesh as the Spirit works within you, not just to have an attitude, but to have actions that bear fruit for the Lord? H have you shared a testimony? Have you given to the work of the Lord? Have you found your ministry? Have you put your yes on the table to do that mission trip? Maybe here in Arab, maybe somewhere around the world. What is it that you are doing where the world would look at you and say, well, man, they don't just think like a Christian. They don't just talk like a Christian. Bless God, they act like a Christian. And so that is the wisdom. You and I are here now, we're alive in the Lord, we're connected to the vine so that you and I can bear fruit for him. He, he is describing the law, a principle, a picture, a purpose, and a path. But now he gives us some details of the law. So that first part, there's wisdom. The second part, I think we'll see a warning I see a warning. I hope to bring y'all along with me. <laughs> it's kind of the purpose of preaching, isn't it? Y'all okay? So he's described it. Now he's going to go into detail. Now, let, let me make something very clear. There are scholars who debate. 
In, in this particular section, Romans chapter 7, they began to notice Paul using language that some people say, well, we're not sure if he's really being personal. If he's, if he's talking about himself, there, there are some who say he's talking about all of Judaism. There are some who go further and say he's just talking about humanity. I, I think Paul is being personal. And the reason why I think Paul is being personal is because the struggles of the flesh in the first century are the same struggles that you and I are going to face today. And this is God's word for you and for me today. God didn't give his word in some vacuum chamber that was only appropriate for Christians in the first century. This is our God for today. And so I think under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, God gave Paul the freedom to be transparent. And when he says I, I think it means I. Just thought y'all might want to know that. Every now and then i got to get a breath. I don't always have a good transition to take a breath. So, he moves from description to details. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 7 is that the law shows us sin. The, the law shows us sin. Let's us know what sin is. What then shall we say is what Paul writes in verse 7. That the law is sin... And he says, by no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So, so moving from description to details, from wisdom to warning, he, he says the law in and of itself is not sin. Now, this is where I get the idea where Paul is really having to be careful because he has made so much of grace. There are some folks, no doubt, in the church at Rome and no doubt the church at Arab, there are some folks who would abuse grace. So he's going to remind us about the law. Were it not for the law, you and I would not know what sin is. There, there would be no breaking of the law if there was no law. The only way you know you are exceeding the speed limit is because someone has posted a speed limit on a sign and put it out on the road for the Lord and everybody to see. How frustrating is that? Some of you probably use that excuse. <laughs> Why are you exceeding the speed limit? Well, I haven't seen a sign. <laughs> Well, see, signs are posted everywhere so you and I can know. It is as if God in heaven has put on display for everyone to understand what his holy standard is. He gave us the law. And when he gave us the law, that expressed, that established, it made clear for everyone what his standard is. And that is also how you and I know we fall short of his glory. One writer has compared it to an x-ray. An x-ray reveals what is there. It makes plain what might have always been there but was before hidden. You don't blame the x-ray machine for what it exposes. 
It is not just the problems are exposed, but the expectations are explained. And the holiness of God is explained. And so Paul is saying that the law is given so that you and I will know what sin is. And then Paul speaks personally and says something about coveting. I think it best to just understand this is the Apostle Paul giving an example of a sin that has been revealed to him that he perhaps struggles with, coveting. That he perhaps wanted more of what he already had enough of. And I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gave us that example because there may be one or two of us in here that may have struggled with covetousness. And how did Paul know that was a sin? He had read in Exodus what we call chapter 20, where the Bible says you shall not covet. And Paul is telling us that the law shows us what sin is. The law in Exodus chapter 20 says thou shalt not covet. Therefore, when Paul would covet, when you and I covet, we know it's wrong. Why? The law tells us it's wrong. It shows sin. But then you get to verse 8, and it gets a little more interesting because Paul says that the law stirs up sin. Look at what he says in verse 8. But sin, we're still on the topic of sin. The great theologian Barney Five says, you can't say enough about sin. I think that's what he said. I may not have the quote right. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What Paul is saying is that when you know what's wrong, sin will actually stir up your desire to do more of what's wrong. Any of y'all ever been somewhere and you saw a sign that said wet paint? There is something within our flesh that just really wants to confess. I wonder if it's really wet. Y'all ever done that? You don't have to confess. I'm not necessarily confessing. I've read about this. <laughs> if y'all ever been somewhere and it says, please use other door. Can I just tell you there's something in my flesh that, by golly, I want to use that door. And I may try the door. I may push the door. I may unlock it and say, well, it's fine. <laughs> Why? Because sin just stirs up sin. The law stirs up sin. Why? Because of the human fleshly nature. I'm telling you, if you've ever been entrusted with children, you can tell them, don't cross that line. What are they going to do? Boy, they're going to get up on that line. They may even put a toe over that line. Why? Because the law can stir up sin. Paul says sin, seizing an opportunity. It's an interesting word. It's a word that was used to describe a starting point. In the first century, in the Koine, the common Greek language, it was used by the military of a base of operations, the place where a military expedition would begin. And so what Paul says is the law, the commandments, are the base of operations from which attacks on our soul are made. 
And, and speaking to our human nature, the New Testament scholar Leon Morris said of this particular passage, it is a distressing fact about human nature that any prohibition tends to awake in us a desire to transgress that prohibition. That if you tell the flesh, don't do that, that's exactly what the flesh is going to want to do. St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending how you choose to pronounce his name, the great biblical scholar, the great church father, wrote in his book, Confessions, about how this happened in his life. And he told the story about the day he and his friends went to steal pears. They didn't go to steal pears because they needed pears. He says, we gave the pears to the pigs. But he said, the reason why we did it was because we weren't supposed to do it. You bring that forward, and Mark Twain said, and I quote, if a mule knows what you want him to do, he will likely do the opposite. And then Twain admitted he was often like the mule, often mean for the sake of meanness. He said he had a lot of mule-ish characteristics. Leon Morris wrote further, and he said, and I quote, until the command not to do an evil thing comes, we may not feel much urge to do it. But when we hear the command, our native mulishness takes over. But the fault is not in the command, it's in the mulishness. It is in the sinner. The Bible says it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul is merely saying that the law... Doesn't just show us what sin is, it stirs it up. But then the, the law results in our not surviving. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul here is describing the day he became aware of the law. Scholars think that when he says, I was once alive apart from the law, he may be looking back to earlier in life, perhaps to childhood, to an innocence before he knew there was a right and wrong. But that moment comes for all of us. There is a time when you and I finally understand there's a right, there's a wrong. Your parents may have been trying to beat that knowledge into you for quite some time. And maybe it, maybe it came for you early, maybe later, maybe some of you still hadn't figured it out. But there is a right and a wrong. And Paul says it became personal for him. He knew what it was. And then he said, when I became aware of the commandment, when I became aware of the law, sin came alive. Why? Because he understood his spiritual condition. And he says, the commandment promised life. How in the world could the commandment promise life? Well, if you keep the law perfectly, you're alive. But none of us can keep the law perfectly. And so then he said, sin came in and it deceived me. Now, I don't know who said this first. I would give them credit if I could. But I'm going to tell you something that someone said, and it's been put to song, and it's been preached, and it's been taught, and it's been used a lot. But I want to tell you something that Paul says here, and it is true. Sin will take you further than you want to go. 
And sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you can pay. Now, that didn't originate in the gospel song that we have heard. That did not originate with the pastor most recently preaching it. It originated somewhere in the past in church history, but somebody got it right when talking about sin. Because Paul here says that sin lies, that sin is deceitful. And there are some of you today who need to heed this warning because some of you foolishly think, well, you know, it's just a little sin. Well, you know, I, I've, got, I've got power over this. I've got control over this. This is going to be fun. Listen, let me tell you, sin is not as carefree as we think. It's not as harmless as we hope. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you can pay. Paul here is telling the church that the law results in our not surviving. By that, he's talking about sin. Sin leads to our death. But then the final thing he says is that the law shows the seriousness of sin. Now, y'all just listen closely to what Paul says. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. After all he said, negative, about how can he say that? Because God gave the law. Because God established the standard. Therefore, he can say the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he says in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's a pretty good word right there. He just wanted us to know sin is sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Listen, the law is holy and good. So he says, did good bring death? No. What brought death? Sin. The law does not bring sin. You and I bring sin when we break the law. See, the law does not make us murderers. We become murderers when we take someone's life. The law does not make us covetous. We become covetous when we covet. The, the law does not make you and me liars. We become liars when we lie. So when we sin, we bring the death. And sin is so very serious. It's deceitful. It lies to us. It leads us where we ought not go. And it will leave us wrecked and ruined. And listen, sin, one writer said it's like cars. The newer they get, the quieter they are. But underneath the hood, there is an engine. And when given the right situation, and you, you apply force to the gas pedal, that car's engine is going to come to life. And it may be quiet, but it's still powerful. Sin may be quiet, but it lies just under the surface. And given the right circumstances, friend, I'm telling you, there's a power there to take us where we don't want to go. That really is the warning. We better heed the warning. We better listen to what the Bible says to warn us against the power of sin. I read recently and found out recently in my nerdiness of reading history in World War II, everybody was amazed at how quickly Germany moved into France and led to their surrender. 
They, they couldn't believe it. And the issue is, the French, for years, ever since World War I, they knew that if Germany would invade, they would come through the north through Belgium. And in fact, when the Blitzkrieg began, there were forces there. But what France was not prepared for was all the armored divisions coming through the Ardennes forest. They said, that's too thick. Nobody will ever come through there. And so when the action started up north near Belgium, they moved their forces up there. But some of the French Air Force flying reconnaissance said, there's tanks coming through the Ardennes. There's trucks. There's bridge materials. They're coming through the Ardennes. And the French high command said, there's no way. Those pilots said, I'm telling you, one report said there was a traffic jam 160 miles long. And the pilots are saying, here they are. And the French high command said, there is no way that can happen. And friend, I'm telling you, sometimes there is this warning. And you and I are just as arrogant as the French. We'll have a false sense of security an attitude of superiority, an unwillingness to heed that catch in our spirit, and a failure to respond swiftly with strength. And friend, I'm telling you, in just a matter of weeks, France was defeated. And they sat in a railway car with Hitler and signed papers of surrender, and life as they knew it was over. And I'm telling you, if you don't take sin seriously, if you've got this air of superiority and some false sense of security and you're unwilling to hear the warning signals when the Spirit of God tells you that's wrong, you need to get right, you are on the edge of destruction. I hope you'll heed the warning. Man, I'm telling you, sin is sin. Sin is ugly, sin is deadly. We better fight it. Pray with me. Father, today, thank you for the, the wisdom and the warning of your servant, Paul. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to take seriously the power of sin. Now, the law, that's, that's not what brings about sin. Sin comes when we sin. Sin comes when we act on what the flesh wants. Sin happens when we deny the power that we find in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us heed that warning. But, Lord, I pray also we would heed the wisdom to realize that we find life through death. And being made alive in you and connected to you as the vine, Lord, as the branches, we are connected to you so that we can bear fruit. So perhaps, Lord, the warning would be fight sin and the wisdom would be bear fruit. I pray you'd find all of us fighting sin and bearing fruit. Well, that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.